Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, and ordinary people to uncover their secrets to living a good life. My name is Kate DeBrito. I'm your host and guide on this journey into happiness. Let's begin. Today's guest might seem a bit left field on a podcast about happiness. Pam Ahern runs an animal sanctuary called Edgar's Mission in Victoria, and she's a loving advocate for the rights of animals. She approaches this subject without judgment and without anger. She simply wants us to talk about why we treat some animals with such love and protection, like our dogs and our cats, but we don't give the same rights to the animals we farm for foods. She also asks the question that really got me thinking. What if we're wrong? What if ethically and perhaps even spiritually, we're not supposed to use animals for food, but we're supposed to care for them instead? It's an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people, I understand, because it challenges a lot of our worldviews. But I hope you'll listen to Pam because she has a lot of wisdom to share about how we can live happy lives without harming others. Okay, Pam, welcome to the podcast. Maybe to start everyone off, we're just saying you had a busy weekend. There's always a lot to do. You run a a farm sanctuary in Victoria. What's daily life like for you? That's a really good question because there are no two days that are ever the same. They're always really dictated by the animals and that can even be a hangover from the night before where we're caring for someone who's come in or someone who's had a critical need because we you know handle these animals through every stage of their life sometimes when they're getting towards the pointy end of their life they require ongoing care throughout the night or it might be an orphan who's come in or a critical care you that were up through the night but they start in the early hours of the morning with care and just checking make sure everyone is okay feeding whoever needs to be fed and then cleaning looking at health checks for every animal we have a routine health check program where every animal gets a thorough health check once a month in addition to the daily care that they get and then there's the afternoon feeding and then putting everyone to bed our days are ruled by our birds our chickens our turkeys our geese and our ducks who have to be locked away every night and because we're into the summer months here in Australia that's later in the day because they don't want to go to bed until it's dark they're just like kids they want to enjoy every moment of the day possible so what sort of animals turn up at your sanctuary how do, how does that happen and what sort of animals you said it comes at the latest stage of your life are they coming from different places do they come from factory farming is that where they tend to arrive from they come from just about everywhere i remember when i started the sanctuary in 2003 and i was saying to a friend you know i wanted to start the sanctuary for rescued farm animals but you know i don't know how i'm going to find the animals to fill the sanctuary and their very wise and profound words were don't worry once you put up the shingle the front that you have a sanctuary they will come and they literally come from just about everywhere uh, lambs are often found by members of the public they may have fallen from trucks they may have wandered out onto the roads often they're surrendered by farmers they come from pounds as well you name it they come from it sometimes I think they just come from the sky but the one thing that unites every single animal who has found sanctuary here is that they've been guided here by the goodness of the human heart someone has seen that animal in trouble 
and realise what they choose to do next will determine whether that animal lived or died. And this is what gives me the greatest hope is that those people have chosen kindness for those animals. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And obviously what you're doing is is beautiful and we'll, we'll go into the sort of background of how that came about in a minute, talk about Edgar the, the pig. But I did just want to say, and we, we talked about this offline, that it is a very... Um, you know, this is a not an easy conversation for for a lot of people because we're talking about something quite fundamental to the way they live and to what they expect to live, which is the using animals for meat or for their animal products. And I know people get uncomfortable. They don't necessarily want to have this conversation. I'm hoping that people can stick in because this isn't about judgment. This isn't about uh, making people feel bad about their choices. But I know how passionate you are and what a great advocate you are for choosing to live a different way. And I also know that you have talked about that it is possible to lead a healthy and happy life while not harming others. And in this case, you also mean animals as well as as people. So can you talk to us a little bit about that question that you've asked and you ask other people to, to think about, which is, what if we're wrong? What do you mean by that, Pam? Well, I've grown up, as, as many people do, you know, thinking that the animals here on this planet are for us, are for our use, are for our entertainment, are for our food and are for our clothing. But what if we have got it wrong? You know, what if we're meant to be the helpers and the healers of this world, not the hurters and the harmers we've become? And I think that's really what's guided me to where I am. My mother was loved animals dearly and my father was very involved in the law and social justice and I think the two of those things you know really married together to to guide me to where I am today and this is one of the things that through the advocacy work that we do is that we don't want to tell people what to do or, or what not to do I've got no authority to do that I've got no guarantee if I do people will live it but I want people to live their truth not my truth. And if they were to live my truth, they'd end up with not getting enough sleep, eating way too much chocolate and terrible dress sense. You don't want to do that. But your truth as to who you are. And, and it comes back to my belief that we, we are an inherently kind people. We are programmed for good. The tragedy for the animals who have been farmed for food and fibre in this world is that people don't see the suffering that we impose upon them every single day. And if people did see that, and realise that we have a choice. They would make different choices, choices that really are aligned with who they are as individuals that will shape the world around them because it's not just the, the untold suffering that we do to animals, but it's also the debasing it does to our humanity. You know, when we harm another being or we say it's only a chicken, you know, it's only a pig, it's only a cow, once we say it is only, we have discounted the worth of another living being. And to do that, a part of our heart has to shut down and it becomes a cancer that just just erodes us. You know, we turn a blind eye to this suffering and the culpability that we have to that suffering. But it is so uplifting and enriching when you live a life that's truly aligned with the goodness of your human heart. That, I think, is, is where the greatest happiness is found, is living your truth. Now, Pam, I know a lot of people who eat meat and enjoy eating meat or, or animal products sort of probably find these, I mean, I've had these discussions with people and I think they sometimes find it laughable. They're sort of like, well, what are we supposed to do, you know, if we don't eat meat? But the thing is we do treat animals that we use for food very differently to the animals we keep as pets. Where does that, you know, that? how do we make that differentiation between the types of animals that deserve our care and protection and the types that don't? Well, it's, it's really become 
social conditioning has just layers and layers of social conditioning to make that seem normal and natural to us but it's really an accident of geography that the dog is our friend and not our food we go to other countries and the dog is food if you took the people who farm dogs for food if you took the people who club the skulls of, of harp seals to take their fur if you took um, the people who put bears into cages to extract their bile, if you took the people who shot harpoons into whales that caused them to die slow, agonising deaths, and if you walk them through our modern factory day farms and our even our fields and our feedlots, they would be horrified at, at what we were doing to animals and, and are we any better? Or have we just become better at kidding ourselves that we are? You know, by putting a label on an animal has really circumvented our ethical thought and our animal protection legislation. I grew up thinking our society cared deeply about animals. We've enshrined it in legislation, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. It says what we can and can't do to animals. So that, that's great. But what most people don't realise is that every animal who's been farmed for food and fibre is particularly excluded from that Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act by things called codes of practice. So we've just sort of drawn a line, an arbitrary line in the sand in our ethical thought and our compassion that says it's okay to do these things to pigs, but it's not okay to do those things to our pooches. But when you get to know those animals, as I've been so fortunate too, you realise that those differences are on the outside only and it certainly doesn't justify our different treatment of them. I think it was Chief Justice Michael Kirby of the High Court of Australia said that the way that we treat animals today is our next great social justice movement. And I really think he's on the money. And when we look at what we do with animals, it's not so much as animal cruelty as social justice. That really takes it to a different perspective to people because people want to think, oh, they're only animals, only pigs, chickens. But forgetting that we're actually animals too. We are a part of the animal kingdom, not apart from it. So what we're doing to animals, we are eventually going to visit upon ourselves. And if we look at what's happening in the world today, you know, with COVID and climate change, it's actually literally coming back to bite us, what we've done to these animals. The other thing, Pam, that, you know, you, you've talked about is, you know, we obviously had social constructs or, or ideas that are now are laughable. And, and, you know, we talked about the fact that, you know, we would look at different races of, of humans and think that they were inferior or, you know, women, you know, all sorts of things that now as we evolve as societies, as modern societies, we we don't stand for anymore or we try to stand up against. Is that sort of what you're saying as well, that at some point we will maybe 200, 300 years from now, we'll look back and think, why were we treating animals in that way? Well, I'd like to think we're not going to have to wait 200 years. I, th I think we're on the precipice of it now. And, and you're right, one of the great determinants of our society's ethical progress has been our ability to embrace those we once considered others, uh, the, from the colour of one's skin to the religion one followed to even gender. Our society says these are no justification for different treatment. We're, we have moved on from the otherness that we put on others to compartmentizing and this this compartmentizing things like labels are good things to have in your kitchen to tell you what products to use but they're not good to put on sentient beings because it really discounts the worth of that being and as I said when you actually get to know these these animals I think it's one of the beauties of sanctuaries that can be done in such a beautiful way that it's, it's this segue to people's hearts and you know, when you come and meet a cow for the first time or a rescued sheep or a gentle chicken or, or a quirky pig to see these animals as unique individuals it really does strike you in your heart reminding you that's the where the place we should be keeping these animals not further south in our stomach and 
I, I just see so many profound experiences by people actually meeting these animals and their persuasive way of being by simply being themselves. You know, people often say to me, well, tell me about chickens or, or pigs or cows, expecting like a blanket answer. But it was even like saying, well, tell me about people. When I say to them, well, which one? Because each and every one of those pigs, cows, chickens are as different as, as you and I. Pam, does this problem feel too big though to confront I mean I accept that individuals can always make a difference and you're clearly making a difference um, in your area but we're talking about the global use of animals for food it feels a bit sort of like the subject of you know climate change it's like how do we get on top of something like this is it possible to create change on something that's so mass scale I mean I, I think that about 70 billion chickens are killed every year that's a that's a lot of animals how would we begin to turn that around when you look at it in terms like that it's incredibly daunting I've got two answers for that the short one is one of my favorite quotes from around the sanctuary it says anyone who thinks that they're too small to make a difference has never been in bed with a mosquito (laughs) I think that really sums it up perfectly Uh, I know mosquitoes to cause me to get out of bed to try and shoot them out the other um, is another analogy is a rescue that we recently did of four sheep from the Wombat State Forest and we're alerted to these sheep late last year and when I first heard about it I looked up the Wombat State Forest and it's something like 70,000 hectares how could I possibly find four sheep in 70,000 it's just too big it's just too daunting We, we can't do it but then I actually went out there and I searched for for hours and and then I actually had a sighting of the sheep And then I went back time and time again. And actually, sometimes I saw them, sometimes I didn't. But then I was able to track them to a certain area. And then we actually were able to rescue those sheep. And the analogy that I take across there to what's happening in the animal movement and the animal protection movement and changing their world for the better is when we actually start to break things down into sizable chunks, what becomes impossible becomes impossible by realising that we're not going to tackle the overall picture overnight. But those little chunks that we do, the little things that we can make a difference in will make an enormous impact about the world that we want to live in. We can throw our hands up and say, look, we can't do it. We can say, I'm going to do what I can. Today, I'm going to do my absolute best and always be kind to ourselves and kind to others. Going to bed with a hand on your heart knowing I did my best today because that's all we can ask of ourselves is to do our best. And I look at our little town here in Lancewood, our population is 1,204. It's a very, very tiny country town. I can go into that very, very tiny country town supermarket and I can buy soy milk, oat milk, macadamia milk, rice milk, almond milk, all sorts of different milk that don't involve the suffering of a mother cow and her baby. I can buy vegetarian burgers that are actually vegan. I can get vegan ice cream in Lansfield. Now, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I became a virgin, those things were impossible. You had to get this powdered milk, you mixed it up with water, it tasted absolutely disgusting. I couldn't even pronounce the word vegan all that time ago. But today, everybody can pronounce the word vegan, thanks to a multi-million dollar campaign by Meat and Livestock, by the way. And we can buy all sorts of non-animal products in supermarkets and stores, and even restaurants are now catering for vegan beyond a lettuce leaf. So the tide is certainly turning and that's only turning because of individuals out there exercising their power of choice, kindness, 
compassion and justice. Well, I think that's why I wanted to talk to you today, Pam. And I told you that I'd been a vegetarian since I was very young. I've been a vegetarian since I was 12, but still consume other animal products, milk and eggs. And it was only um, recently when I read Peter Singer's uh, book, um, Animal Liberation, his updated version, that I started to think about the questions that you have obviously been thinking about for years, which is that what gives us this right to um, use and hurt animals in this way when there are other options available. So I guess I've tried to um, think about what my options are and and whether it would turn me into a vegan, a thought that fills me with a little bit of terror. Um, But having said that, um, is it useful for people to... um, think about small changes that they could make about buying more ethically. I I recall you saying that that is is less useful and maybe just more about making ourselves feel good. It's a really good question. People will will often say to me when when they're out, you know, that they they only choose free range and uh, look at, you know, causing um, the least harm to animals. And I think often it's more a way to appease our conscience rather than what we visit upon the animals because regardless of the system of production that is imposed upon that animal, it still is a system that we've imposed upon them. Their lives will be framed around their human use. Even their health care, you know, animals in um, free-range industries may be denied health modalities when they're they're sick or ill because they don't want antibiotics and other things getting into the food chain. An animal, if they become injured, may not get the life-saving care that they need because it's not cost-effective to do that. So everything around, regardless of the system, how that animal is, is farmed, is based on human use. And I think that we need to think about, are we comfortable with that? And I always say to people, Edgar was a free range pig. And I could no more eat my beautiful Edgar than I could my cat or my dog. I think we really need to think about those things and arrive where you arrive. But but why not go the one of a better word? Go the whole hog. It's it's not that hard. Everybody is at a different stage of their journey. And the last thing we want to do is alienate someone. No one wants to feel bad. No one is going to change the way that they do things because someone is rude to them or belittle them. So it is a really challenging conversation to have, but I think we need to have the courage and the compassion to have those conversations. I really commend people for starting to think about those choices. And I do actually remember the night that I had my epiphany and I I actually prompted by that book, uh, Animal Liberation, that you talked about. I'd gone along to an anti-fur rally wearing my leather skirt, a leather shoes and, and, and woolen skirt, and people were talking about animal liberation. And I got a hold of the copy of the book and I was reading the part where Peter Singer had gone to the chapter of the local RSPCA by some mutual friends and they were talking about animals and how they could better the world for animals. They're getting on really well. And they served ham sandwiches and Peter Singer thought, well, that's odd. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's got a point. Here I was rescuing cats and dogs and telling people to be kind to animals and expecting people to take me seriously while I was consuming other animals. So overnight, you know, having this epiphany, but I, I did love steak. I loved juicy steak and chicken and all of those those things and I thought well gosh you know maybe I could get meat from a farmer friend who lived around the corner because he killed his animals um, at the property and I thought well that yeah that that's where I can land and then I thought well really the animal's still being killed you know if you really want to be true to who you are Pam you cannot consume those animals anymore so overnight that that was my epiphany too actually to stop eating animals and, and consuming their products I just 
you know, other people could not know what I was doing, but I knew. At the end of the day, I knew. I remember in the early days when I went out with some friends and they had a plate of cabana and cheese and they said, oh, you know, go and have a piece, no one will know. I said, well, yes, they will. They said, no, I'll turn my head and you can take it and I won't know whether you did or you didn't. I said, but I'll know. I'll know. I will have to go to bed with myself knowing that I was living with an inconsistent principle to something that was really, really very, very important to me. And the sense of liberation that did to me was absolutely incredible. Like I had no idea, no idea about those choices that I made and really how they impacted upon animals. And and that book really made me confront the reality of my choices and it let me do it in my own space. And I could do it within my own space, in my own home, in my own thought process. And that was where I landed. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about really encouraging people to think and the work of Edgar's Mission and lots of other, you know, animal protection organisations, sowing those seeds of thought so that people can actually mull upon them themselves and arrive where they need to be. And again, I come back to the goodness of the human heart. And if we follow that through to its nth conclusion, it does involve living animals off our plate. I think that that book, as you said, Animal Liberation, obviously it was a seminal book in terms of um, animal rights and the updated version is, you know, very interesting because it sort of brought it forward to current day. But I think I, I knew I didn't want to read the book for a long time because I kind of knew what I was going to be getting and there were parts that I had to read between literally with my hands over my eyes if that's possible because they were very distressing especially about animal experiments but I think the factory farming and when I say factory farming I, I want people to understand that I'm not talking about something I'm talking about how most of our food is produced it's produced in, in big big factory farms People have a very different idea, though, about the way their food is produced, don't they? They tend to think the animals are out, like, you know, roaming, that even free-range chickens are just roaming around in pastures and, and it's all very lovely and sort of like an episode of, of the movie Babe. But that's not really what happens, is it? There's quite a large scale of suffering that goes into any food production. Why are we in the dark about this? Well, to the success of uh, the meat and livestock industries, and I think it's one of the reasons why they've really jumped on actions such as those coming out of farm transparency, where these people are actually going and getting real-life footage out of slaughterhouses and factory farms to actually show people what's happening. You know, one of the things Chris Delfort said is actually people need to know, and I really do think people need to know the reality of their choices. I have no qualms about watching how a carrot gets to my table, but I do about how a cow would get to my table, particularly with the dairy industry. And we have think this this dairy industry is is romantic and bucolic and all these incredibly wonderful things. And dairy is, you know, a natural source of nutrition. It is if you're a baby cow. Like a, a baby cow is an animal who will have its stomach divided into four compartments. It has a very heavy bone mass to body ratio and, and they grow quite quickly. Humans are none of those things. So from even a health point of view, we're, we're putting the wrong fuel in our bodies and the animal is paying an enormous price for that. I actually saw um, something online this morning. Someone was complaining how they had to pay $79 um, for a, a rump steak. And I thought, well, you're complaining about $79 for a rump steak. That animal paid an enormous price with their life so that you could have a fleeting moment of joy from that steak that will be very short-lived. That animal will never, ever live again. I think it's one of my greatest regrets, but then I don't think we should have any regrets because we can't go back. We can only keep going forward. 
but I wish I had have known about it sooner. Um, I think social media and the way the internet is and the way our information is transmitted so much quicker today and we have access to areas we never had before that really you can never again say that you don't know. Well, Pam, your um, your you know Instagram video was one of the reasons I contacted you and you did talk about um, the production of milk, which again... I you know, to be at this stage of my life and honestly have not thought about or not considered how milk was produced. I had always just thought that, you know, a cow got pregnant and then they just kept milking it forever after until it, I guess it stopped being milkable, but that that was just a, a you know, something that the cow put up with in the morning or the afternoon, but that's not what happens. Cows become pregnant and their babies are taken away. They are milked for a, a period of time and then they're made pregnant again and the process goes on and on and on in and it's quite distressing for the animals cows love their babies correct oh look absolutely and again it's to the success of the dairy industry i was the same i grew up thinking that cows just produce milk by virtue of being a cow now how naive are we to to not even think about that like they're, they're mammals just like us and you and i aren't lactating by virtue of being a female and neither does the cow the cow, just as we would in the latter stage of the pregnancy, the body will start to change and start to make milk. And then when she has her baby, just like we would, colostrum would be the first milk that she would deliver to her baby to kickstart their immune system. And then as the baby grows, she'd have milk production to be consummate with that. As the baby start to be weaned off and start to eat solid foods, her milk production cycle would naturally start to diminish. And if you think about it, the wild auroch from which our modern day cows have been selectively bred, they would only produce six, eight litres or so of milk a day for their calf because that's all their calf needed. But if dairy cows produce that much of milk today, they would be no longer ec economically valuable or viable to the farmer. So through selective breeding, they have these massive udders. They suffer as a result of that. They can get some mastitis. They suffer lameness as well. And then from that continual cycle of pregnancy, which is often artificial insemination, those animals become worn out and they're sent off to slaughter to be made into hamburgers. As a result of knowing this knowledge and my contribution to that, I couldn't change the past, but I wanted to rescue a mother cow as my living apology for what I'd done in the past. And that was how the beautiful Clarabelle cow came to us. But she was pregnant and she got to give birth to her baby at a sanctuary. But she didn't know that time was going to be any different from all of those pregnancies before her. So when she gave birth to her baby, she hid that baby in the forest here. And we didn't find that baby for about seven days after she was born. Clarabelle very cleverly gave birth earlier than she was meant to. And it was only one day when I was feeding her that I noticed one of her teats was engorged. I thought, that's a bit strange. And I followed back to her back to the forest. And there in the forest was this sweet little doe-eyed baby calf just blinking at the world around her absolute innocence and Clarabelle walked over and she gently licked her baby and I was so touched by that so I'd go back to check on the baby every day but Clarabelle kept moving that baby to different locations because she didn't want that baby taken away from her like every one of her baby had and it was the most incredible story and we've told that story over and over we made a video about finding valentine because it was valentine's day that we found valentine and people have been so incredibly touched like you and i can speak about mother cows and what we do to them but when you see firsthand this story about this one mother cow and the incredible lengths that she went to to keep her baby safe hoping beyond hope that that baby wouldn't be taken away from her like every one of her babies had before 
it really gets you. You know, the mother-child bond, it transcends species. Yet we humans just routinely break it up. And if you speak to anyone in the dairy industry in a moment of pure, unbridled honesty, they will tell you that the worst days of their lives are when they have to separate those mother cows from their babies. People actually suffer a condition called the PITS. It's perpetrated induced traumatic stress syndrome. And it comes from when people are actually doing things to other living beings that goes against their inherent goodness. Uh, slaughterhouse workers are now being seen to suffer this condition. And even people in animal-based agriculture are seen to do these things or experience this trauma as a result of what they're actually doing to animals. And it's really, really difficult because a lot of us wouldn't do those things to animals, yet we pay people to do it on our behalf because, of oh, course, we could never, you know, kill a cow or we could never separate a mother cow from a baby or we could never macerate day-old male chicks in the egg industry. But we're paying other people to do those things by the choices we make. But the beautiful thing is then, the hope is that we don't have to. We can make kinder choices in our life that will give those animals hope that their lives can change for the better and the humans who work in those industries as well tell us about edgar uh, i don't even hear my voice i'm smiling um that pig oh my gosh like where do i start i had no idea on the 10th of may back in 2003 when i set off to get a pig for a photo shoot both of our lives would profoundly change as much as they did he just blew me away. I had no idea when I got Edgar that I would actually go on to start the sanctuary. We just needed a pig for a photo shoot with James Cromwell to highlight the plight of pigs and our flawed animal protection process, which was a code of practice for pigs. The photo shoot went so well that James decided to do this action on the steps of Parliament House. And he was going to walk up the steps of Parliament House with little Edgar Allen Pig trotting beside him, demanding a better deal for pigs. So my task was to take Edgar down to our local park and get him comfortable with walking on a lead and people being around him. People came from absolutely everywhere to marvel at Edgar and his unique brand of pigginess. Let's stop what they're doing. Those rubbies tummy go, 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 go. And they're saying things like, oh, my gosh, he's so clean. He's so clever. He's better than my boyfriend. And it was through watching those interactions with Edgar that really got me thinking that the best ambassadors the very best ambassadors for changing the way people think about these animals who are farmed for food and fibre are the animals themselves, to give them a chance to meet these animals and realise what they're really like. I would take Edgar and my little dog to the park. They both knew their name and occasionally they would answer to it. They both loved sitting on the couch. They both loved their tummies being rubbed. And when it was hot, I'd turn the air conditioner on to keep them cool. And when it was cold, I'd stoke up the fire to keep them warm. You know, for all intents and purposes, they're exact same, except for that one stark reality. They look different. And our society uses those outward differences to justify the different treatment, you know, giving protection for some animals, the ones who share our hearts and homes, and denying other animals like Edgar protection simply because they look different, simply because of the intended use we have of them. Nothing to do with the animals themselves is so inconsistent with our sense of justice. But people just don't realise that. And Edgar was absolutely, there were like so many stories about Edgar. He would come in the house. He had all these different sounds. You know, people think the pigs just go oink. Well, no, they don't. They have these deep guttural goo 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 goo. That's their hello. And they'll make this woof, 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 woof sound when they get scared or they want to scoot up the paddock excitedly. There's all these different vocalisations. They communicate a wealth of information. And people just don't get to see that. 
and when you do it really really at the time I had Edgar I was I was already um well and truly a vegan but it gosh I just thought my gosh how could I have not known who these animals were I've got to share this with the world and Edgar's mission has become my way of doing that Pam, how can people find out more? We've talked about Peter Singer's book and it is a great book. There are other books about, you know, factory farming, about animal experimentation, which can give people, as I said, very confronting but realistic understanding of of what actually is happening in the production of their food. Are there other ways people can start to learn more about about animal farming and about animal rights? I think it's really important that we actually, you know, self-education is really important. You know, don't take my word for it. Go out there and find information. Visit farm sanctuaries. Go and meet these animals whose lives you determine with the choices that you make. There is a wealth of information out there. Um, I love Ed Winters. He's got some wonderful books. He's just bringing out a, a new book, um, How to Win an Argument with Meat Eaters, um, a really lovely way he delivers his messages. He's got another book, Vegan Propaganda. And they're really lovely messages. And I think one of the things why um, Ed Winters work resonates so much with me and I go back to my school days uh, I was always really good at maths I loved maths because it was logic and you didn't have to rely on you know any self-interpretation you just learnt the logic of the maths problems and you could just apply it to all sorts of situations and I think the logical thing when we think about you know the things that we do in this world living compassionately living kindly living healthy living the least um footprint on the world living sustainably you follow that to the end conclusion and it is to stop eating animals the irony of that is I've actually no longer pursued maths and I'm actually a writer a storyteller which was never my forte at school but I have actually become a storyteller with these animals encouraging people to think about those things I said so really be informed ask who's giving you the information um is it the dairy industry is is it is it vegetarians or vegans think about what's important to you where it comes from what resonates with you and run with it pam i started by saying that people might wonder why they're listening to a happiness podcast but we're talking about factory farming we're talking about veganism we're talking about all of these things that don't have a lot to do with happiness but you're talking about kindness, which which does have a lot to do with happiness. What have you learned about that from the animals in the sanctuary and about the people who, who bring them in? I think caring for animals is the happiest you can be. You know, finding your happiness, knowing that you're not contributing to animal suffering. One of my happiest times is actually being out there with the animals, whether it's the sheep or the cows or the pigs, and watching their happy-go-lucky way of being. It it's it flows through you. It, it emanates from them, and you just feel this incredible sense of serenity that you're actually living in peace and harmony with the world and the animals who share the planet with us. That is where you find true happiness. Well, Pam, I really appreciate your, your time today and I also appreciate the people listening who have who have hung in there. You know, there is a lot more to this subject than we discussed. We didn't want to discuss some of the, the brutal aspects of factory farming, although there are some very confronting things that perhaps if you go do a bit of research you can you can read about. But I, I do think it's worth people just having a think about how they can live more ethically. And and I really appreciate the fact that you've raised these questions in a way that's not judgmental about people's choices. We're all of us mostly just doing the best we can. But I think it's worth 
doing what you're doing, which is sometimes asking questions about things that we we take for granted. So thank you very much, Pam. Can people come and visit you at your sanctuary at Edgar's Mission? Absolutely. We have lots of free tours that people can book um, a tour to come and and visit the sanctuary and and learn what makes animals happy because it's not always about us. It's about making, um, amplifying our happiness and causing those around us to be happy as well. So visiting sanctuaries is a great way to do that. Well, Pam, I'll put information about the sanctuary in the show notes, but do you think you might be able to also give me a couple of suggestions of sanctuaries in other states for people who uh, might not be able to make it down to Victoria? I'm sure you have friends and colleagues in other parts of Australia. If I actually jump on um, Vegan, Vegan Australia has a website that lists all the sanctuaries in Australia that's a great place to go because there's so many growing but when we started we were about the only sanctuary around and now there's sanctuaries in every state they might even have one up in the in the Northern Territory so vegan Australia Australian farm animal sanctuaries you'll find all the sanctuaries listed that's wonderful thank you so much all right Pam well I'll let you go as you said you've got always something to do on the sanctuary always an animal to feed or to care for so um, appreciate what you're doing and and your time today bless thank you so much Kate